But once you get down to the bone layer, you just use the paint scraper to like peel back the layers because it's a really soft shale. Yeah, it's like flaking away. Yeah, so it's really nice. And when you do hit a bone, it just kind of makes a tink, and then that's when you know you got something. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips, Edmonton's Historian Laureate, and this is Let's Find Out, a monthly podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichi Waskahigan, on Treaty 6 territory. Each episode, I find people with questions about local history, and then we find out the answers together. This episode, The Dinosaurs at Danek, a quest to learn about stories millions of years old, buried not too far underground, right here in our city. It starts on a sunny morning in May. When I was a kid, there were three things I wanted to be when I grew up. A paleontologist, an astronaut, or a cartoon. None of those quite panned out. But it turns out, if you do want to become a paleontologist, you can actually get some practice digging up fossils right here in an Edmonton ravine, at the Danik Bone Bed. A friend of mine tipped me off about the bone bed and said I absolutely had to visit it. So I gathered a few questions from Edmonton kids about dinosaurs, and I arranged to bring them to the paleontology students working at the site. It's a really delicate site, so they asked me to be a bit vague about where it is. Suffice it to say it's on the south side of the city, somewhere along White Mud Creek. And it is very cool to be on a hiking trail and overhear the sounds of paleontologists working in trailer-sized pits dug out beside the creek. You know what is not very cool, though? How I have met Phil Curry twice now, and both times I was unable to stop myself from saying this. You're the blog guy? I'm the podcast guy. Okay. Yeah, and... I'm Phil Curry. You are, uh, uh, yeah, one of my childhood heroes, that's oh. all. Yeah. <laughs> Phil Curry, in case you didn't know, worked at the Royal Alberta Museum. He worked at the Terrell Museum of Paleontology for 23 years, including as curator. And now he's a dinosaur paleontologist at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. I was much more suave when I introduced myself to Clive Coy, one of the other paleontologists on site. I'm Clive. We spoke on the phone. Yes, indeed. Hi, Clive. Thank you so much for... Glad you could make it down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I got some questions from kids. Um... Clive gave me a bit of context for the bone bed. Um, I'm Clive Coy. I'm the chief technician of the Dinosaur Research Lab at the University of Alberta. There's three pits here. So there's pit one that you walked by, pit two where the students are working over there, and this is pit three. So they're, pit one and pit two were joined up a couple of years ago, and eventually two and three will be joined up. And so from that furthest end to, to here is 65 meters. And it's, uh, you know, five to six meters wide. So it's kind of a test pit in total through the bone bed. We don't actually know how big this bone bed is. Um, and then in the future, we're gonna open up a pit at a right angle to this. So it'll look like uh, the letter L eventually to see if, how far um, to the south the, uh, the, core, or the uh, bone bed goes. As you can see, the northern extent is set by the creek, so we can't go any further than that. And that side of the sediment has all been washed away, so. I can't believe how close this is to like houses and just a hiking trail. Yeah, well, it's it's the McTaggart Wildlife Sanctuary, so it's really great that this land was preserved. I think back in the 1960s, um, it was a private 
area and then it was donated by the McTaggarts to the University of Alberta. So yeah, it's great. I mean, I'm hoping that the people that live nearby actually take advantage of the walking trails in here. And um, There's an old coal mine, so when you go to the west, there's an old coal mine operation back from the Oh, the 1920s, 1930s. Um, but yeah, there's lots of nature trails through here. That's so cool. And this is a, a summer sort of field course that's happening right now? Yeah, this is Paleo 400. So this is a course that students take for credit if they're interested in coming into the paleontology program. It's uh, mandatory that they take the course. So the idea is to give them a um, basic understanding of how you find dinosaurs, how you excavate dinosaurs, how you map them, how you photograph them, take all the information that we need, then how we excavate them, bring them back to the lab. Many of the students here also volunteer um, at the university to come and work in the lab and then they'll get an opportunity to uh, prepare the dinosaur material as well. Does this look good on a resume to, to have said, I came down to the Danic bone bed while I was still an undergrad? <laughs> yeah, well, if you're going into paleontology, as I said, it's mandatory, but it's always good to get as much experience as you can. I mean, Dr. Curry runs one of the most um, field-intensive programs in the world in terms of getting students out in the field, not only here, but we work in southern Alberta. We also have opportunities to work overseas. We do quite a bit of work in Mongolia and Argentina. Um, so that there's, it's one of the few programs that allows people the whole meal where they can go out in the field, find something, collect it, bring it back to the lab, also participate in preparing the specimen and stabilizing it, and then also doing the research and then publishing on it. So it's a, a, a whole package here. Cool. Um, do you mind telling me what everybody's working on right now? Yeah, at the moment, so you can see, so Edmonton sits mostly like everybody's houses sit on top of glacial soils. And then this band at the bottom is glacial gravel that was brought in. So this is actually the old creek bed. So White Mud Creek over behind you there, its, its bed was originally up in here probably two or 3,000 years ago. So we had to dig down through that to then reach the uh, bone producing layer which is this black plant rich shale that the students are using just paint scrapers and small tools and brushes to clean it away and then getting down to the bone level. Um, and this is a bone bed so most people think of dinosaurs as a complete skeleton but what we're dealing with here is a mass death assemblage so if you think of wildebeest crossing the river in Africa today about 10% of those animals will drown in the river, so the elderly, the sick, the very young, and their bodies float down the river, they rot, they fall apart, and those individual bones from the skeleton are then buried in the modern riverbanks. Well, that's the kind of thing we're finding here, is, is the remnants of some kind of death event that we don't fully understand. Bodies have fallen apart, so we're finding the individual bones of those animals. This is probably because I grew up with the like Terrell Museum sort of landscape in my head, but how common is it in Alberta to find dinosaurs in this kind of soft, or fossils in this kind of soft layer? Um, it's ex extremely unusual to find them in this very soft sediment like this. So it's very fortunate for us. It allows us actually to get a great deal done um, in the three-week period that we're here. Um, it does complicate things, though, where the bones can be equally as fragile as the surrounding matrix. And right now it's damp because it's been underground and it's springtime, so the snow and et cetera has only just melted away, leaving the ground fairly wet. So it's e easy to excavate through. But by the time we jacket them up, get them back to the lab, if we leave it too long, 
the sediment actually dries out and kind of puffs up like popcorn, which can damage the bones. So we try and get the bones prepared and stabilized as quickly as we can after we excavate them. Do you mind telling the story of how this site was found? Sure. Um, well, the reason it's called the Danik Bone Bed is because it was discovered by a local artist named Danik Mosdensky. Um, and he uh, was walking his dog, I think this was 1988 or 89, walking his dog along the creek. And he's a fossil enthusiast, so he was actually looking for footprints which sometimes wash out of the creek bank and dinosaur bone and discovered there was quite a bit of bone coming out of the bank here. So he alerted people at the Tyrrell Museum who came up in 89 and 91 to do some excavations here and then discovered that it was a bone bed and left it at that point. And so when Dr. Curry came from the Tyrrell Museum to come and work at the University of Alberta in 2005, decided this would be an excellent site to bring students out because we can bring them out every day um, without having to set up a special field camp and feed them and actually have an encampment here. So we can come, work, and then at the end of the day go back to the university. With that, I let Clive get back to it, and I crouch down to watch the students at work. We were in a pit that was dug down about as deep as an average-sized person. Five students were on their hands and knees in the dirt, scraping and brushing away. It was a bit mind-blowing to know that they were digging into a layer of soil called the Horseshoe Canyon Formation that's about 67 million years old. I'm trying to see if it's made out of silver clay. Get out of the oh, that's, Just leave me alone. That you have to do like the grit test. Yeah. Yeah, but you can also you can feel it on your teeth, whether it's yeah, silver clay. Yeah, that's the grit test. Yeah. But, but, then, but my TAs got mad at me for eating rocks. Is your name Caroline? Is that right? Yes. Sorry, what's, what's your full name? Caroline Sinclair. Caroline Sinclair. I, I noticed you switched from one tool to another. Why'd you, why'd you switch? Um, well, this is, I'm using this to kind of break up the glacial scour here. This is the, the um, what would you call it? The, this tool that you have in your hand right now, what's that? Paint scraper. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and then once it's broken up, I use this little handy broom-like thing to just put it into the bucket. Mm. That's all I'm doing at the moment, till I get down yeah. to the bone layer. And once that bucket is actually filled up, she's going to take it and she's going to put it into a hole that we dug the first day. Well, Caroline, you have bucket so. duty now. <laughs> Back on bucket duty. Well, technically we all take our own buckets. Bucket duty. <laughs> But, but once you get down to the bone layer, you just use the paint scraper to like peel back the layers because it's a really soft shale. Yeah, it's like flaking away. Yeah, so it's really nice. And when you do hit a bone, it just kind of makes a patink. And then that's when you know you got something. But I'm just breaking up this bit right now so I can get down to the bone layer. Have you been to this site uh, for very long? How, I, I don't know too much about the structure of the court. Um, we started two weeks Two, two weeks ago, yeah, two weeks ago, um, and I'd never been here before. This is my first dinosaur dig site, and it was really cool. My very first find was a tyrannosaur tooth, wow. so it was pretty, it was pretty exciting, and uh, oh, it's addictive. It just makes you want to do more. Well, I was over in that corner there, and it was mostly just there was a little ledge next to the wall, and we were told that we have to kind of make the wall sort of flat. So we were mostly just going through, uh, taking the layer out so it would make the wall more vertical. And then, uh, and then I, I felt it and I heard it and I saw the little um, point come out, and it has the beautiful little serrations on either side that's typical of Tyrannosaur teeth. So it's probably Albertosaurus because that's the main Tyrannosaur that they've found in the bone bed site, but it's, it's pretty exciting. 
yeah. So pretty cool that my first ever find was a Tyrannosaur tooth. Nice. Mm -hmm. This site is mostly uh, Albertosaur and um, Edmontosaur. Edmontosaur, yeah. What was your name, sorry? Taya Weinberg Hensler. Hello, Taya. Um, have you been able to find uh, something yet? Oh uh, yeah, I found a pre-max tooth from an Albertosaur. Um, I'm working on a, I believe, a toe bone right now on a hadrosaur. Um, I found this right here? Yeah. This one? Yeah, that's okay. an ungual. Yes, that's the proper term. This is a really cool piece here. Um, I think it's a tibia is what it is. And there's actually an Albertosaurus tooth right next to it. Holy man, right here. Yeah, so that probably, well, likely broke off as it was being scavenged. Whoa. I, these are so much darker than I expected. They are. It's really neat, actually, because, um, yeah, the, the shale is so dark to begin with. Like, it's it's really dry right now, but, like, you can sort of tell, like, this is all part of the shale, and the bone is about the same color. So which is why we do the mapping, because when you take pictures, sometimes you just don't see things like that because it's black on black. But, um, but, yeah, the bones are probably dark because they have a higher magnesium content. Interesting, because that was what was around the bone when it became fossilized. We, we suspect there's still a lot of mysteries around the actual process of fossilization. People keep telling me that science isn't glamorous, that it's all waiting for lab results and making spreadsheets, but this is amazing. It was even cool following one of the students to the pit where they dump out the excess sediment from the area that they're digging. Because on the way back, a little chickadee looked right at me from a tree branch a tiny dinosaur on a branch, watching us huddle over the fossils of ancient dinosaurs. All right, so after learning a bit about the Danik bone bed, I figured it was time to bring out the questions that kids gave me to pose to these paleontologists. These first few questions were from kids I met at the Evanston Regional Heritage Fair. It's kind of like a science fair for history nerds. It's great. This first question was from Serena Asif. Bones do dinosaurs have? Oh, interesting. Like, how many bones are in a dinosaur's body? Yeah. Yeah. Is there one dinosaur in, in, in particular that you think of when you think of that question? No. Just any. <laughs> Phil Curry was good enough to answer this one. Uh, every dinosaur is a little bit different, Serena. For, for example, some have very long necks and some have very long tails. And so they have more ver uh, vertebrae, more pieces of backbone than the ones with short tails or short necks. But uh, on average, most dinosaurs probably have about 700 bones. What's the fewest bones you've seen in a dinosaur? When you get to older animals, um, where many of the bones actually fuse together, and if you count them as one bone instead of several bones that have fused together, uh, you could probably have as few as about 300 bones. All right, thank you. That, that is a very comprehensive answer. <laughs> <laughs> probably more comprehensive than you want. <laughs> the next question was from Ahmed Threya. His mom and we dad told me he was, quote, obsessed with paleontology, unquote. So my name is Ahmed Threya, and um, I'm from the Edmonton Islamic Academy, and my project is called the Royal Tarot Museum. Um, is the Albertosaurus... Um, a bigger cousin uh, is the Albertosaurus, kind of like the T-Rex, the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Caroline Sinclair, the student who lucked out finding an Albertosaurus tooth, answered this set for Ahmed. 
Okay, so what would you say about the relationship between an Albertosaurus and a Tyrannosaurus Rex? Well, the Albertosaurus is slightly smaller than a T-Rex, and it comes from a, a slightly earlier time slice. Um, and I think it's a little bit more gracile, too. It's a little bit more slender than the T-Rex. The T-Rex is pretty chunky and large, but they're, they're very similar as far as Tyrannosaurus go. There's a lot of, lot of other different Tyrannosaurus that are smaller and more, more gracile, more slender looking. There was another student at the Heritage Fair who I knew would have some paleontology questions, Katie Lebrun. I'm Katie Lebrun, and I'm doing Joseph Tyrell, who discovered the Albertosaurus, Canada's first meat-eating dinosaur. He also started the Great Dinosaur Rush. All right, if you were to talk to a real paleontologist today, what are you curious to know about? What would you ask them? Um how many albertosauruses that have been found and probably how long the great dinosaur rush was because that never came up in my research. Katie got the most comprehensive answers, I think, from Phil Curry and Clive Coy. To date, how many albertosaurus have been found? A dozen. At least a dozen complete skeletons? Yeah, reasonably complete skeletons, so skulls and skeletons. It's not as much as Gorgosaurus. Gorgosaurus, we have about 40 right now. And uh, T-Rex is probably standing around 50. And Tarbosaurus, which is another Tyrannosaur, uh, there's more than 100 of those. So um, there's quite a few Tyrannosaur skeletons that have been found so far. Why isn't Tarbosaurus more famous? Tarbosaurus uh, comes from uh, Mongolia. And uh, because of that, people in North America tend not to know it as well. Uh, it's also a little confusing because when Tarbosaurus was first found by the Russians back in the 1940s, they misidentified it as Tyrannosaurus. So for many years, it was called Tyrannosaurus as well. Okay, thank you. And Clive, did you want to... Um, I, I don't know if anybody has, has this particular knowledge off the top of their head. Katie wanted to know about the, uh, the Great Dinosaur Rush, how long it lasted because it hadn't come up in her research. So essentially the Great Dinosaur Rush from, was from about 1910 to 1920. So you had the American Museum of Natural History uh, <clears throat> under Barnum Brown um, coming out, checking out uh, the Badlands in what we now call Dinosaur Provincial Park. And they discovered the mother load of, of dinosaurs. Um, which then created this competition. So the, the uh, Canadian government decided rather than banning foreign collectors that they would put their own team in the field, which brought more Americans called the Sternbergs hired to work for the uh, Geological Survey of Canada to collect dinosaurs for Canada. And then the Royal Ontario Museum and then a lot of different museums around the world came and collected dinosaurs in Dinosaur Provincial Park. Um, it sort of petered out um, in the early, early 1920s, there was just a small groups that came out. And then by the time the Great Depression came along, it kind of collapsed. Um, but really, the, the, the big, the, the dinosaur rush, as they say, is roughly 1910 to 1920. Did it collapse because people had been funding their own expeditions and people couldn't afford it anymore? Or what was the reason that it... Well, museums just didn't have the funding anymore to send expeditions into the field. Um, the, uh, they're, they're just their budgets didn't allow it. Most of them were foreign museums, so they had to get their teams here in the first place. And even Canada, they just decided that it was too expensive to keep up the, uh, keep up the work. And then it kind of came back in the 50s and the 60s. And then, of course, with the Tyrrell Museum, 
um, in the early 80s. And then we were, we're actually having a uh, second goat dinosaur rush, as it were, that far outstrips what the original uh, dinosaur rush in the 1910-1920 period. We found way more dinosaurs, way more new dinosaur material. But certainly we, we stand on the shoulders of giants. They led the way, so we've benefited from their previous work a great deal. So this is a historically exciting time right now? Yeah, it's 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 important. Um, I mean, we're finding more material, and what reaches the newspaper is, you know, brand new dinosaur, dinosaur with feathers, but um, we're just finding so much material now that we, we, you know, at one time dinosaurs were on display in museums. They were kind of the, almost like a dragon, like a mythical creature came, people went to the museum, ooh, ah, and then you'd done the museum, you'd seen the dinosaurs. But now we have so much evidence in, that really makes them living animals that just happen to be dead. We're finding out so much about um, them as animals, um, about how they might have cooperated together, how they might have moved together as groups, how they might have cooperated as families, the reproductive system. And we're getting to the point now where we're finding soft tissue preservation, feathers being preserved, that kind of thing. So. Things that uh, people a hundred years ago just never dreamed of. Would you mind saying just a little bit about what you've been able to learn about the life cycle of the Admontosaurus from this site? Well, sure. Um, so it's a it's a bone bed, and so you've got the remains of skeletons of a lot of different individual animals, and but they're not all the same size. They're not all adult. We have small animals in here, and we have medium-sized animals, and we have big animals. So that indicates, and we know that this was deposited more or less at the same time. So that indicates you've got a, a large group of animals that are moving together. And it, it makes most sense that with them being herbivores, in particular plant eaters, that they're moving as a large group, much like bison did or like antelope do today, um, groups of herbivores that stay together. It's, it's safer for them. And, you know, they're eating a lot of whatever plant material they were eating, they're eating a lot of it. So they just have to constantly be on the move, much like the bison were here on the plains. They're eating grass. They eat a lot of it, so they just need to keep moving. Otherwise, they'd strip an area naked. And it's likely the same kinds of things were happening with this group of animals. And lastly, my friend Kyla Tishkowski gathered three amazing questions from her tiny niece, Kalina. And this will certainly be answered. Was there Lego in the dinosaur times? Okay, go. Uh, what are the, what are some of the names of the fish that lived in dinosaur times? Go. Okay. Uh, are there really caves that lead to the dinosaur times? Caroline Sinclair was gracious enough to answer these very challenging questions too. Um, was there Lego in the dinosaur times? Okay, I didn't hear. <laughs> and um, what are some of the names of the fish that lived in dinosaur times? Uh, okay, so in whatever order you like. <laughs> All right. So, uh, as far as we know, uh, up to date, we're not too sure, but there's probably not any caves that leave lead back to the time of the dinosaurs but there's still room for investigation and further research. Um, we have found no fossil evidence of, of Lego in the dinosaur time, but I think if Lego did exist, they probably would play with it. So Lego is awesome. And some of the fish of the dinosaur time, um, 
Well, just before the time of the dinosaurs, there's this really awesome fish called Dunkleosteus. Dunkleosteus. And that thing was, it was a massive armor-plated fish that had scissor-like jaws that could just slice through anything. Um, in the time of the dinosaurs, we have a lot of really neat um, marine reptiles that look a lot like fish. There's these things called ichthyosaurs. So I ichthyosaurs look almost like if you took a dolphin but turned it really evil looking, gave it a lot of really scary large eyes, tons of tiny little needle-like teeth for catching fish. Um, those were around during the time of the dinosaurs. Uh, there is these things called mosasaurs, which, um, like, it's the, the thing that eats the shark in Jurassic World. Um, and they're pretty awesome. They're, they're not that big. They're not as big as the one in Jurassic World. That would be a monstrous-sized mosasaur. Um, but the, as far as fish goes, um, I think most of the, m like the main orders uh, of fish had evolved at about that time. So I think most of the fish themselves looked uh, pretty similar to what you'd see today in the oceans. And with that, everybody put down their brushes and scrapers to take a mid-morning break. The next layer of Edmontosaurus regalis bones would have to wait, because Caroline had a cake made for everybody. Cake, cake time! Wait, actually? Yes. Yeah. Like a full-size Do, Do you see what it says? Trilobites are better than dinosaurs. <laughs> I, I did a project on trilobites in the last semester, and I like invertebrates a lot. And trilobites are these little, they almost look like little sow bugs or wood lice. And, uh, and everybody else, basically everybody else here does work on dinosaurs. So I just thought I'd remind them that trilobites are better. Before I left, I asked Clive Coy a question I often pose to people doing interesting research in the city. Is there any way that members of the public can get involved or check out this site? No. <laughs> no, I'm afraid not. Because we, <clears throat> we only work here for three weeks and then we close the site and we actually remove everything every night um, so we don't leave anything behind. But yeah, we actually rather that the public didn't come down in here. By the time you hear this, they'll already be gone. And the site itself will be cleverly disguised as just another spot along the ravine, waiting for next year to share more of its ancient secrets. Thanks for listening to Let's Find Out. If you're enjoying the podcast, I have some public events coming up you might like too. On Thursday, June 1st, I'll be speaking at Edmonton NextGen's Pecha Kucha Night. It's at the Citadel Theatre at 7pm. On Sunday, June 4th, I'll be leading a history walk around Ritchie. That walk is actually completely sold out already, but there's a wait list. I'll link to that on the website post for this episode. And on Friday, June 9th, I'll be speaking at the NEOS Library Consortium mini-conference. My talk will be called, I Need Everything You Have on Harriet Brooks by Tomorrow. Anyway, I love hearing your feedback about Let's Find Out, and I want your questions about Edmonton history, so drop me a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. Also, I get a lot of emails that I don't really have anywhere to fit on the show right now. Would you guys enjoy a mailbag section of the show? Let me know. I also post between episodes on the Facebook page for Edmonton's Historian Laureate. You can listen to all of our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and letsfindoutpodcast.com. I also post pictures there on the website for each episode, an extra reading. You don't want to miss the pictures of the dig site this time. Okay. Thank you, time. Thank you to Serena Asif, Ahmed Threa, Katie Lebrun and Kalina Tichkowski for their questions. Thank you to LaVon Schill for tipping me off about the Danic bone bed. Thanks to Clive Coy, Phil Curry, Eva Koppelhus, 
Caroline Sinclair, Denise Moranga, and Taya Weinberg-Hensler for answering my questions, as well as all the rest of the paleontology students on site. Also, thanks to Ian, Kelty, and Kyla Tejkowski, Weedad Threa, Anne Hamler, and Christina Hardy. Thanks to the Edmonton Historical Board and the Edmonton Heritage Council for supporting this podcast. To everyone who's been supporting it, especially Finn. Original music for this podcast is by the really lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Artwork for our logo by Andrea Herji at Mount Pioneer Design. All right, that's it for this month. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. Until next time, keep your questions coming. <laughs>